Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor and ex-hockey player Wyatt Russell. Wyatt was born into the film business, the son of Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, which can be a difficult way to grow up. But despite their massive success, Wyatt's parents were a grounding presence who emphasized hard work always. As Wyatt tells it, they did a really good job of making us understand that what you get is earned, not given, and there's a reward in earning it. In light of that lesson, and after an eye-opening trip to a hockey rink, Wyatt decided to deviate from the family way and forge his own path. He was going to be a professional hockey player. As Wyatt grew up, his NHL dream seemed more and more like a distinct possibility. He was a talented goalie, and his parents moved to Vancouver so Wyatt could compete with Canada's best. Unfortunately, being born into a famous family brings its own unique challenges. Wyatt says, people were like, here comes this circus act from California. Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's kid wants to be a hockey player in British Columbia. He says he had to prove himself by putting his head down, not talking, and doing the work to become the best goalie in the league. His promising hockey career lasted into his early 20s and included a trip to play professional hockey in Europe, but a spate of injuries led to the end of his dream and the end of his identity as a hockey player. Sitting on a hospital bed after a particularly brutal hip injury, Wyatt asked himself, what do I do now? I have no idea what I am. So Wyatt reflected and he realized he loved film. And despite the perilous nature of the business, he decided to pursue an acting career. But in typical headstrong fashion, the last thing he was going to do was ask his parents or siblings for advice. He was going to do it his own way. After getting work in a number of films, such as Cowboys and Aliens, We Are What We Are, Folk Hero and Funny Guy, and more, Wyatt discovered that he not only had the chops for the business, but he actually loved the work. Wyatt's recently made the transition to television. He's the lead in AMC's Lodge 49, a weird and whimsical show about an ex-surfer named Dud who finds himself on a vision quest after the death of his father. Wyatt joins off-camera to talk about the uncomfortable reality of fame, the mentor who helped him discover his independence, and why the locker room is the best place to learn about male vulnerability. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm a big fan of yours. Yeah, wow. Well, and I can prove it. Oh. <laughs> a couple years ago, <laughs> I tried to cast you on a TV show I was working on a few years back that I directed. Oh, no. Really? Yes. And I was really heartbroken. I think you were on another project oh. and you couldn't, you couldn't do it. So we almost worked together. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I wish but I would. You know, it brings up a question about you. acting and about how it's so hard to make choices and knowing what choices you make are going to pan out and you have to leave opportunities behind. Yeah. Especially in light of what you're doing now, which is you're the lead on this show, Lodge 49. And it's a long commitment to, to say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in this TV show and I'm going to work whatever half the year on it. Honestly, you don't really get to choose unless you're, and I mean really choose choose, unless you're in the position where you're a big star or you really don't need money. Most of the time, you're trying to do the best with what you have, and if you get something or if someone's interested in you for some specific thing, you do it. Right. Uh, for me, the way I've been able to structure the things that I've been able to do have been the choices have all come from what I thought was, what I, what I thought personally was interesting. And I think it goes for every, for every career, whether it's photography or you're a lawyer or you're an athlete, that you have to find the right fit. And that fit can actually be more beneficial to you than just taking, taking an opportunity and running with an opportunity. And, and that's the weird thing about being an actor. Other than some of those other professions you mentioned, you're not trying to get a job every four, five, six, ten times a year. And I would think that... Well, that's where doing a TV show, for me, came into play and said, look, if you want to make money right now and you want to have a, have a little bit of leeway and not keep doing indie movies that don't pay bills, I mean yeah. they don't, that you've got to make that decision. And that's the decision that I think what you're talking about is the big, I'm going to do this for possibly five or six years, committing right. to a character. That's a big decision and that was a big decision for me. It was, you know, I got to play this guy and it has to be able to go, you know, 
many different directions. And that's the thing, because once you do something like that, that you do it for a long time or it has a lot of exposure, you are sort of seen as a certain way. Yeah, you do something well, they're gonna, they're gonna ask you to do it again. And you do something, and, you, and if you keep doing that and you keep going down that path, you're gonna reinforce that idea that this is the only thing that you do and this is what you do. And that if you don't try and prove to people through your work that what you're good at is more than just this one thing or these two things or these three things and you build upon that, then eventually they'll come to see you as someone who, has a, has, who, who can do a wide variety of things. With television shows, it is very difficult because you don't, are not in control of the character's destiny entirely. And I do think that if you find the right fit, which I feel like I have, and made the right decision off of reading the material, which was when I first read for Lodge 49, when I first read that material. Right. And let me jump and yeah. say, Lodge 49, it's on AMC. You play a guy who's lost his father. It's set in Long Beach. You're a surfer who worked for your dad's pool supply company. You were bitten by a snake in South America. Your ankle doesn't work properly. You can't surf. You don't have any money. You and your twin sister are sort of really struggling with both reality and, and sort of some crises in the head from trauma and grief. And you stumble across a lodge, like a fraternal order of people that... It, it becomes this whole story about trying to find yourself through this acceptance of these people. It's It's... As I'm doing this, I realize I don't know, how hard yeah, it is to Shake explain. your hand because that's the best I've ever heard anybody describe it. It's, it's the, hardest, it's the weirdest show on television. I say that with, with as a great compliment. That it is the weirdest show on television. And thank, thank you. You know, in a sense, you play this guy Dud, who he doesn't know it, but he's on a vision quest. Yes. You yeah. Know? And and that that you, you described you're describing it perfectly because there's there's a whimsy to the to the whole story that is in our own lives sort of indescribable. You can't always put your finger on a moment, know why it happens, and then explain to everybody what just happened and why it happened, which is part of what, there's a magic quality to the show that I think encompasses that. But the way I've described Dud is I think he's just the type of guy who walks through a door because the door's unlocked. Right. And then you're in the next room and you've got three doors and you wait around in the next room and if there's a door that looks interesting, you'll just walk through it. He doesn't ask too many questions. and. There's a, there's a beauty in being that way, and there's also a naivete of being that way that's fun to watch and watch, watch him struggle with and struggle through. Why did that appeal to you? For the very reason that you, that we, that you talked about before. I was sent scripts of other television shows, and I didn't want to play the same guy over and over again because it ends up becoming... You end up playing one thing. A lot of people had wanted me to do some more action-y you know, straightforward stuff, maybe because of preconceived notions of Well, you're what, a tall, big guy. Yeah, and, yeah. played sports. Um, yeah. And I just didn't find it interesting uh, at the time because it was something I had done, and they're, and they're usually one-dimensionally written, um, especially shows that go on for five or six years. Sure. This was, when I read it, it was immediately my humor, um, and I wanted to meet the guy who wrote it but it felt more like something that I could do for five years and not get tired of because the range of emotion is complete in absurdity to very grounded, very real, and, I, and it's a character who has to live in both, both worlds, and when you have to live in both worlds, you can go anywhere. So he could end up flying on a magic carpet over Egypt if he right. wanted it to, or being at someone's bedside while they're dying. And, and, and so that, that to me meant... Dud can, can go anywhere, you can be anything, and uh, it wasn't going to be constricting. Yeah. And it hasn't been. How do you sort of create this guy? Do you start by trying to figure out how he is like you, or do you have some <laughs> archetypes that you look at? And you know what I mean? Because yeah. this is sort of a new experience for you to be a lead in a television yeah. show where your decisions are sort of pushing the story along. Honestly, for me, in the, anything that I do, it's just, it's on the, it's, it, it's on the page. It's from the writer's mind. I don't try and watch other actors do things because that, to me, uh, we live in such a derivative world now where if I have a reference, I don't know, for lack of a better reference, it's like uh, Marlon Brando on the waterfront. Right. And I was trying to do that, which would be really dumb, but <laughs> because I can't think of anything, that's what I'm just going to say. You can go look that up on YouTube 
and you see what I'm doing. So because it's so derivative now, if I constantly try and use a um, a model or a reference that someone can even go look up that used to be, you know, that, that would have used to have been um, something you hadn't seen a lot of or was right, you know, right. Not Everything's co-opted. Available. You're saying everything. Yeah, yeah. That I guess for something like this, I'll try and. Get out, uh, get out of my head a little bit, and not think about anything. Uh, you know, I'll, literally, I'll try. I'll learn the lines on the day of, for this specific one. I'll learn lines on the day of. I won't learn my lines for every day. Really? Because Dud doesn't know what he's going to say next. Right. And I don't want to know what I'm going to say next sometimes. And then, so you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about it, and you're thinking about it, and I just get the, you know, and I, for this specific one, I just get the line. <laughs> In my own head, I'm just grabbing on. To, he's constantly grabbing on to whatever he's going to say next. Yeah. So I'll do stuff like that. I'll learn it then and kind of go and just put it and just completely forget it, so that when it comes up, and I'm grasping for a line, I'm it's done. Dud, Dud's grasping right. for fucking straws every time he's doing anything. So it's a planned, specific way of doing it. Uh, it's not. I'm not winging it, but. The whole point is to feel like you're winging it, you know? And it's yes, and, you know, there is, I mean, I guess this goes back to finding roles that really fit you because yeah. you obviously understand him. And I'm just curious if you've, in a weird way, through osmosis, adopted any of his philosophy <laughs> towards life, think, you know what I mean? I think I would like to. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love to go through life just sort of, not thinking about what my next move is going to be. I'm not like that. I'm very, very calculated. I do make decisions based on thinking about it a lot and talking about it a lot and wondering if it's the right thing and if I can do it and if, I can, if I'm going to be the right person and if I'm able to do the job. I, I, think, I'm, I, I can think myself... That was part of my problem when I was playing hockey. I can think myself out of a game. Really? Yeah, I can like, totally. Like not being present enough. Not being present. So thinking about what, thinking about the future, what if, well, what if this happens, if, if then, con- living in an if then statement world. So all of my thought process will come from if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, if this, then that, and then all of a sudden you've extrapolated to a point where you, you're down, you're, you're so far down the line, you don't even know if those things are really going to happen or not. But you think maybe, so it's a calculated decision, and Dud doesn't have any of that. It's like, yeah, well, it's going to be great. <laughs> Yeah, people would say Dud is reborn every minute. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. That's a great way. To t- that's a that's a perfect way of describing it. He's reborn every minute, and and I and I would, I, you know, I. It's funny. I do look at times where I don't I don't agree with Dud a lot. Oddly, there's a lot of things that Dud does in the show, or I I Wyatt don't agree with, but I have to do because they're Dud. Right. And someone said to that my fiance was at like a party or something, and and. Someone was like, "Isn't why it's like just like Dud?" And she started laughing, and she's like, "Fuck no, he's not. <laughs> he's not like Dud at all." But well, isn't that the trick, though? Like, that's when you know you're doing something well as an actor is that people assume that. I think so. I, I think that I've said it before. You t- the way I look at it is, I'll t- find find an aspect of the character that it is myself, or something that I'd like to be in the character, and I take that 5% of myself and I play 100% of that 5%. Try to separate myself and be objective about the, the thing that's on screen, the person that's on screen playing the character and not what I did or what I'm doing. And that that is a better mirror to reflect what I am and what I'm doing in that moment than if I'm trying to look at myself uh, be the character. You know what I mean? Do you fight that instinct a little bit? That that thinking yourself out of things that you were talking about. D- do you have to? Not in acting. Not in acting. No, not in acting. In hockey, I did. What? Where do you think that came from? That that Being idea that f- you, afraid to fail. And do you think that comes because you wanted it so bad? Yes. Hockey. Yeah. Yes. I wanted hockey, but more. It was my life. I wanted it so bad I can't even put it into words, right? Like, it was, it was everything to me. Because it gave me an identity. I had parents that were famous. I had a family that was famous. Life was supposed to be easy for me. I found something that wasn't easy. It was my own way of creating obstacles for myself and my life. Because you didn't feel like people of your ilk, the offspring of, of privilege, had enough obstacles. No, you don't. 
Well, of course you don't. Yeah. You, you live in a privileged world. I played a sport where um, you had to go to places that weren't where I lived because it was you know, Lakewood or Long Beach. And uh, I had a Russian hockey coach named Konstantin who'd come here from the Ukraine. And I learned a lot of life through him because he had a very difficult life. And he made, and we, he taught us, the kids and me specifically, um, what hard work meant and what hard work was. And from that time when I was about 10. Uh, how, how did you find hockey? Uh, my mom was doing a movie in Toronto. My dad took me to an ice rink when I was like three, four. And he said, we're going here for the days to kill time. And I, like, it was like my, I, I can, it's my first memory. It's my first lucid memory where I can remember skating from bench to bench and I can remember the guy in the jeans. I mean, it was like my brain opened up and this is what I'm going to do. This is it. This is like, this is the thing that's going to. You loved it. I loved it. It was, it was. And did it come everything. quick, the skating? Yeah. Like it, backwards skating and all that stuff. I, I can't, uh, uh, it, it all came at such a rush at one time. It was just like, this is. It was just, I was born to do it. You it had a like calling. How it felt. Yeah, that's what it felt like. And I think the part of it was, it was very, very difficult. So it, as a young kid, I was super aware of, what, of my parents. I was super aware of the fact that when you go to a Kings game, everybody's looking at you, and, and everybody's waiting on you, and everybody is asking what you need. And, and it wasn't, I don't know whether it's my makeup or whether it was my parents or whatever, but it wasn't, didn't feel comfortable to me. So funny because I, you think 99% of the kids in that situation just turn into entitled little punks. I, yeah. that, like, I wonder what stopped you from... I think probably my parents. I mean, I think pro- that, I mean that's, their makeup is not that. Right. They just wouldn't allow us to be like that. I mean, that, that was not an option. I mean, really not an option. It wasn't an option. <laughs> so... That the, and and they did a really good job of making us understand that the, that what you get is earned. It's not given, right? Right. The, and that there was reward in earning it. There was more reward in earning it than 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 just ex, than experiencing it and and having it happen and being born into it or whatever that feeling is. But yeah, I guess for me that was that was it. I mean, I, I wanted that thing that was going to give me an identity that was going to define me, and this did. And and also I could wear a mask. Was that part of it for you? Yeah, yeah. Nobody could look at my face and judge me on anything other than what the, what the merit of the, of the play was, what the quality of the play was. So if you let in, and I was a goalie, so if you, it, it, which made it very easy because it was numbers-based. So if you have a low goals against average and you have a high save percentage, you're doing very well. If you don't, you're not. There was no subjectivity. And I was super uber-competitive. Uber, uber, uber competitive, probably to a degree that was unhealthy. I didn't like losing. I hated losing. When you say that, what's the image that comes to your mind? My, when I lose, uh, lost the national championship in double overtime juniors, junior championship in, in Schreiber, Ontario in 2004, the Richmond Sockeyes. It's the worst moment. It wasn't the worst moment of my life, but it was... It was heartbreaking to this day and I and I'll never forget it and it was really tough that was one of the most important years of my life bar none for any reason and uh, to not win when, when we felt like we should have was just very difficult you know it's funny about being a goalie I think the goalies get blamed a lot for the losses yes you know what I mean <laughs> yeah 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 so I wonder what the what the like the glory was in being a goalie you know, versus like... Because there's a fulfillment quality to being a goalie. So when you win a game, and I've played, I've been on both sides. So you win a game as a player, it's like really fun and it's exciting and there's a lot of adrenaline and it's a, it's a specific type of feeling. When you're the goalie and you win the game and you play great, everybody in the stadium knows it was you. Everybody. When you play great. When you have a shutout and, a, you know, I had, there was one game where I had a shutout, it was 45 shots, we won one nothing and... I made a couple great saves at the end. There's the reason that you, it, it's it's the reverse. The reason that you won was because of you. Everybody, you can have eighteen thousand people. It's you, right? And it was only because of what you did. That's what appealed to me was the, the how good you played in that specific game was gave people a feeling. And I'll ne- there was a game in Penticton when I was eighteen years old where we were playing, it was an away game, and 
uh, I was playing very, very well. And I had the other, the other people in the stands, chant, the other the, the visiting crowd chanting my name. Really? Because I was playing so, it was just a very, it was a very I was playing very well. And it was just, you're giving, you're, it's still entertainment. You're giving them an experience that is really fun for them. And, they're, they're, and to be able to make people feel that way just on the merit of wh- how you're doing, it's not subjective. It's just an objective, guy can't, guy can't lose. It's unbelievable to watch. And that was, for me... Um, that gave me self-worth. It gave me an identity that I could be proud of. And I think it gave me an identity that my parents could be proud of. And that was, that was really fulfilling to me. And that you, can't, you, cannot, you can only get that as a goalie. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. You know, several months ago, Helix Sleep came on as a sponsor and they asked me to take this sleep quiz. Now, I've been sleeping on the same mattress for a long time, and I don't think much about it, although I occasionally have back problems, and I don't always sleep the greatest. So I took their sleep quiz, and I had always thought I was a firm mattress person. But after going through the whole quiz, I found out maybe I'm their middle level of plush and firmness. So I turned to my quiz, and really soon thereafter, a box showed up at my house. And out of that box, a mattress about three times the size came out which was kind of amazing in itself. But then I put it on the bed and I slept with it the first night and I had a great night's sleep. And I was like, okay, maybe that was an anomaly. Maybe I was just tired. But over the course of the coming weeks and months, I slept so much better on this mattress and I wouldn't go back to anything else. I realized that my old mattress was too firm and this mattress from Helix has the perfect combination of a plush top, but enough support so that my lower back wasn't sinking into the bed. I love it, and I wouldn't ever get another mattress. So you should definitely try Helix Sleep. Their sleep quiz takes just two minutes to complete, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress for you. So whether you're a side sleeper, a hot sleeper, or like a plush or firm bed, with Helix, there's no more confusion and no more compromising on an average mattress. Just go to helix.com slash off-camera, take their quiz, and they'll match you with a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. And for couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They were even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. Best of all, they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but I think you will. So here's the deal that Helix is offering for listeners of this show. They'll give you up to $125 off all mattress orders for our listeners. So you can get up to $125 off at helixsleep.com slash off camera. That's helixsleep.com slash off camera. Now, back to the show. So your, your parents, if I understand right, they moved to Vancouver so that you could yes. really go for the stream. Yeah. And I think that's the case nowadays for sports. I mean, if, you, if you've got a kid that's showing real talent, it's sort of like an all-in. Like, like you realize you're competing against other families that have gone all-in. Yeah. So what was the feeling of knowing that your parents were changing their, their lives so that you could have the stream? Like when you got up there, did it, did it create more pressure to succeed because now that was your whole thing? Yes. Um, but could you still enjoy it, I guess I'm asking. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. My parents changed their, the, they changed their lives, but they made it very clear to me that they were willing to do that and wanted to do that for themselves as well. That it was actually fun for them to be able to ha- take an adventure uh, with, their ch- with their kid, with their last kid who was at home. Right. And my cousin had gone away. The baby to, always gets the purse. Yeah, I was, and it was a. To- I mean, yeah, exactly. And, and I and I loved it. Uh, but my cousin had gone away to school to play hockey when he was fifteen uh, at Governor Dummer, my cousin Luke. And one of the the things that I think my my aunt said was that sh- there was somewhat of a regret that they weren't around during those times. And my parents didn't want to miss that. And they didn't want to miss watching me progress in hockey and see me achieve dreams. And they didn't want to miss it. Yeah. So they didn't make me feel like, we're doing this for you. And this is a sacrifice. 
and this is, you know, you better do great. And it was none of that, which I think was really important. It was yeah. just, we were trying to support your dream. And, we, and they found, my dad found um, a goalie coach who ended up being one of the most important people in my life. He's my mentor, my life mentor. And uh, he took me under his wing and taught me about life through goaltending. So they were able to find that person for me that wasn't my parents, who was able to show me the ropes of, of life and, and, sh- and, and open my eyes to the reality that I was living in. And never before had anyone said in very bluntly, you are the son of famous people. What are you going to do about it? And th- that was my, it was really my first introduction into, you're going to have to work your way out of, of this if you want to do this for a living. And so my first hockey game ever in Abbotsford, there was a guy who came around the net, and he was probably 6'3", and I was 17, and six, I was 16. And he said, uh, he's like, comes around the net, and he goes, I'm going to punch your teeth down your throat, knock your teeth down your throat, and get in People Magazine. And I was like, really? fuck me. Like, okay, this is like, because yeah. now you can fight. In the league that I was in, you can, now you can fight. It went from like minor hockey in California, which was very good skill-wise, but the toughness... Is a totally different thing. So you think there was some sort of targeting based on who you were? I know. I mean, it happened. I got I got knocked out a few times. I don't know whether. I mean, I got knocked out once because yeah, because of that. But I, yeah, I was I was the guy came around the back of the net one time, hit me in the back of the head, a short base plate on the back of my head, and hit me in the back of the base of the skull and knocked me out and. I don't know if that would have, you know. Did I don't he make know it in People Magazine? Thing. He didn't make it in People Magazine. I got suspended for 30 games. <laughs> but but I, 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 it was just the idea that now there was a real physical threat, and there were times because of who I was, and uh, luckily I had a great team, and they sort of bound around me. because it, it, And it's also just the way the goalies, the goalie thing works. It's, if your goalie gets hit or in a fight, it's always it's a big fight. It's like your pitcher in baseball. Yeah, yeah you don't want, the guy can't get hurt. But there were, there were elements of just eye-opening shit that wouldn't have happened to me here if I wouldn't have gotten out of my comfort zone of being in L.A. and living here, where it, there, was a, there was a real... It, you, I had to open my eyes up to what was really happening. And I was taking a BC kid's spot. It comes up and was like a circus act from California who is uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn's kid. Right. And I, he wants to be a hockey player in British Columbia with all the other... And so I had to, I had to prove through just putting my head down and not talking and, you know, just work and, and become good and become the best goalie in the league. That was the only way it was going to work. You have to become the best guy. It's not going to work if That's you're the pressure third best. right there. Yeah, and so and and it was pressure, but I I enjoyed it because at least I was working towards making my I making giving myself an identity. I was working at it. I wonder what you think it was that that made you so independent-minded and, and wanting to follow your own path rather than like the spoils that were waiting for you. Because the spoils that are waiting for you aren't spoils. There, spo- there aren't spoils unless. Spoils of war are earned through fucking dying and bleeding and death, right? Yes, and I think a very, you know, wise older person realizes that. But I don't think a lot of, you know, 15-year-olds... Just the people that I was surrounded by. Yeah. And specifically my goalie coach, I think, Paul. He, it was very clear that the people that are being nice to you right now are not your friend. That guy who you think is being nice to you and is... And is rubbing shoulders with your mom, and you know, being nice to your dad. That guy's that guy is your enemy, because he doesn't want the best for you. He wants you to fail, and it was the truth. And it's very difficult to see for a 15-year-old if you don't have that type of person around you, because if you don't, and you don't have the truth teller around you, you're fucked. You're fucked because you, you don't have you don't have the ability to see real danger and deception and and that's when i think that the you, you get into the you get into kids who do drugs and you get into the people who push shit on you and you get into all that because they don't understand truth they don't see it they don't it, it, they're deceived by at every corner because they think 
that they actually want to be your friend. They don't want to be your friend. They just want the shit you have. And they just want to be near you so that when they're seen next to you, that, that that angle and them being close to you gives them an ability to get a leg up in life. Because they see it that way, even though it's not true. Even though that won't be true for them. Do you remember an example of that where that became sort of crystal clear to you? There was a couple times of a person who, he was a person who I thought was wanted my, my best interest in mind. And he was always very kind and he was always very nice and um, he did a lot of stuff for me and would always, you know, help me out. And, you know, he was just a very nice person, a very unassuming guy. I think he was a, he was a teacher. And he worked around the team. And I found out uh, about six months after I started playing that he wasn't, he was the scorekeeper and he was purposefully not counting shots. So when you don't count shots on net, if you have 35 shots and you've only counted 24, my save percentage is going to be way lower. It's going to be a percent lower if I let, for every goal I let in. And what was his, what was his Because point? I'm not a BC kid. Oh, so he Because just... I'm taking, I don't deserve it. My parents are famous and they're rich. I don't deserve to have success. Wow. So he's going to be nice. He's going to be kind. He's going to be the person who's giving me all of these things and tips and helping me with my shit and whatever. And I also, and, and then found out that he was, like, you know, writing articles or giving information that wasn't true to uh, the newspaper about, you know, like, my dad was always buying people houses, coaches' houses, and, you know, like, shit like that. You know, that, buying coaches' houses for maybe on the team. God, it must make you so yeah. wary of, like, it must, que- it must make you question every interaction you have when you grow up in an environment like that. It did, yeah. That was a problem. It, I had to get over that. I was very, very cynical at a very young age. But yeah. It, so it was, it was a constant struggle through your whole life to, like, make what, to carve out a piece of life for myself to call my own. Yeah. Even though you do have privilege and you have all of these things, everybody, you need that you, you've got to have struggle. You've got to find struggle. If you don't find struggle, you're fucked. Again, you've got to find it. And, and, and not to, and, 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 the, and a big part of it was nobody else cares about your fucking struggle. Right. And nobody should. So don't think that, that by you struggling, that, that by you showing everybody how much, how fucking hard it is for you, that it matters. It only matters to you. only matters to yourself. And that's what you take with, with you. And that's what makes you better, and that's what drives you, and that's what will make you good. And at the end of the day, the people that are not healthy for you to be around, you have to be able to compartmentalize and say thank you very much. And, and uh, you got injured quite a bit, and then enough eventually that it ended your career. Mm-hmm. Was it a point where physically your body couldn't do it, or, or did you just see the writing on the wall of... If I keep getting injured, it's going to be dangerous for me, and I've got it. Like, how did the sort of dream stop, and how did you come to the realization that this wasn't going to be your your career, and how did that affect you? Um, in college, one day I woke up and I was I had pulled my groin a bunch, and I was playing really well. Came That's a hockey thing, right? Because you stick your leg out quickly, yeah, and stop yeah, the uh, for goalies especially. And I was I had a hip problem, and I didn't know what it was. And the doctors were like, I can't really figure it out. My dad ended up going for an MRI for his hip. He found out that I had this, it was a genetic thing called dysplasia, oh, dogs yeah. have it. And so that was my problem. So I, I woke up one day in college and said to myself, what am I doing, what am I doing? Well, I want to go play professional hockey. I'll go to Europe, I'll have an experience. And right about then was when I just said, I'm not, I'm not going to play in the NHL. That dream's that For dream's a long dead. time, was that sort of the, that's not it, only the goal, the goal, but it, did you just believe that was going to yeah, happen? Yeah, and, 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 and from the time I was, when I was about 17 or 18, after playing so well, I had a great 17-year-old year where we beat everybody in the world, and it was like, you know, we lost in double overtime, but we were a great team, and I was, I, you know, I proved myself that year. And it was going very, very well. And I got hurt for the first time, and it really set me back a little bit. And then I got a lot of concussions, and concussions were my, my, my problem. How would you get concussions being a goalie? Uh, different ways. Uh, 
once I was picking up pucks and the guy took a shot and didn't know where he was putting it and hit me under the chin, under the under the helmet. Oh wow. Another time I went out to poke check a guy and I got kneed in the head and threw up center ice and another time I uh, got my feet ripped out from underneath me and my head hit the back of the ice. That was my worst one where I was in the hospital and that was a disaster experience. But that was the that was the that was the experience where I thought I broke my neck. Uh, I, I was immobilized on board. Uh, couldn't feel my f- hands or toes for quite some time, and I was just thinking, "Well, I have to do something." And I was looking up at ceiling tile like that. Yeah. But it was water stained in the Brampton Hospital, and I just thought, "Well, I have to. I'll have to write, or I'll have to do something. I, I, I can't play hockey anymore." But I. <laughs> Got, I got put next to a stab victim and then slept the night in the broom closet with the man who stabbed the stab victim next to me when I walked in. So it was like a whole fucked up night. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like, it was, a, it was um, an experience. I think you found your resistance. Yeah, right, yeah, right. Yeah, so, so, but that's part of it. Finding your story and finding your place. It was all part of it and I was all very excited to have had that happen to me. For that specific amount of time, it was a disaster. But, uh, I, I still needed to play. I still wanted to yeah. complete the circle. The circle wasn't finished, um, but yeah, it was. Uh, it was really, it was really a, kind of a weird moment where I realized that I might not do this anymore, and that was really the moment where I thought, maybe I'll watch movies. <laughs> you know, maybe I, I do like movies. <laughs> I like, I, I enjoy them, and I think I can be good at it. So why don't I? Why don't I just not be such a dick about it and realize that my family has a great life and I don't know everything about everything about fucking movies. I don't know anything about movies, so maybe I should learn a little. And I enrolled in a USC film course. Oh, you did? Yeah, for directing. And I had so much fun. I enjoyed it so much. And the people were not hockey players. They were not athletes. It was the only time I'd ever been hanging out with people who really weren't athletes, who I had a lot of strangely in common with. And from that moment on, I was 20, uh, I just said to myself, okay, this is, this is something that I think I could do one day after I'm done playing hockey, whenever that may be. I ended up getting injured for the last time in, in um, Holland uh, after playing a few years of professional hockey, blew out my hip. They made me take an MRI and an X-ray, and they said, look, you have to get the surgery. If you don't get the surgery, like, you're not going to be able to play. Was there ever a moment where you had to, like, kind of face it? Like, do you remember going, okay, I'm done, and... The last time I got... I, I, I was playing against Amsterdam. I made a butterfly... I just made a normal save, butterfly, butterfly shot from the, from the half wall. And uh, it popped. It popped out. It carried off the ice, and I just knew it. As soon as it popped, as soon as it, I knew it, and it was over, and it was the last game I'd ever play. And it was actually wasn't actually that's not true. It wasn't the last game I ever played because they paid me more to come back, like all tied up and fucked up, and I fucked it up even more. But I knew I was sort of fucking it up more, to the point I was sabotaging myself at some point. I was like, I'm gonna fuck it up entirely so I can never play in my head. I was done. Did did you need though to have to have it be set in stone that you yes. were able to play to be able to yeah, get up? Yeah, I'd still game. be doing it. Uh, it's addi- it's totally addictive, and it gave me an identity. So that when you're, right. when it's ripped away from you, now you're no longer that. And it's what do I do? I have no idea what I am. I have no idea who to talk to. And you think you're old. That's the that's the trick that athletics plays on you that I had to unlearn. Was that you're always so when you're 16 to 20, that's junior hockey. If you don't make it, if you don't make it past 16 to 20, then you're done. It's over. So when I was 20 years old, 19 years old, playing junior hockey, you're like, fuck, I'm an old guy. And then 20 to 24 is college years, and if you don't make it past college, like, you're done. And you're like, fuck, I'm an old, I'm an old guy. I'm 23 years old. I'm not gonna... And then 24 to, you know, 32 in the NHL or whatever. Right. Then you realize when you're not doing that anymore how just it's like a magic cloak that's lifted off your shoulders. You just go, holy shit, I have my whole life in front of me, and it's, I, I have options. And I was so happy that I got hurt when I did because it was the perfect time. I didn't, I, 32 years old, after playing hockey in weird countries, it's tough to, to re-enter society. Hey, folks, let's take a little break from the conversation to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, Acuity Scheduling a Squarespace company. 
What is Acuity? It's the scheduling assistant that works 24-7 behind the scenes to fill your calendar, and it takes hours of work off your plate. From the moment clients book with you, Acuity is there to automatically send booking confirmations with your brand and your messaging. It can deliver text reminders, let clients reschedule on their own, and process payments so your day-to-day runs smoother, even as your business gets busier. All you need to do is show up at the right time. And if you're like me and you run your own business, every minute you can save is a game changer. You never have to ask again what time works for you. You know that awkward dance you do? Well, why don't you give me some times and then I'll throw back some times and we'll figure it out. And then all of a sudden your five or six phone calls or texts in, you still don't have an appointment. Well, not anymore. With Acuity, clients can quickly view your real-time availability without having to check with you. And they can reschedule with just a click and even pay online. What does this mean for you? You can book more clients, get paid on time, and automate and organize your business's day-to-day with the right tools. Acuity can adapt to any business. They have the ability to manage multiple locations and employees, class bookings, private sessions, add-on sales, and even recurring subscriptions. And you can keep your clients prompt with text and email reminders without having to do anything. And you can dramatically reduce appointment no-shows with deposits or full upfront payments. They also have a database that allows you to collect everything you need to know about a client as soon as they book by asking clients to fill out intake forms when scheduling, keeping all of their information neat and tidy in one place. And you get notified anytime a new appointment is booked. You can check your schedule right from your phone and even tell Acuity to automatically update the calendars you already use, like Google, Outlook, iCloud, or Office 365, keeping your entire life in sync. Basically, Acuity is like having the perfect assistant. So save yourself the day-to-day drudgery of having to keep up with your clients and your busy schedule by using Acuity Scheduling. And on this show, for a limited time only, you can get 45 days of Acuity Scheduling absolutely free with no credit card required by going to acuityscheduling.com slash camera. Again, that's 45 days of Acuity Scheduling absolutely free. Just check out acuityscheduling.com slash camera. Now back to the show. So the big question is, for someone who is so completely wary of the business from watching it through the way people treated your parents yeah. and treated you, like how did you sort of make peace with the idea that you were going to go like dive into that that world of people that seemed yeah. untrustworthy, to put it mildly? Because I got older and I yeah. knew that I I I I knew that I could deal with it m- my own way, and I knew how to stand up for myself at that point. And when I got to acting, it was like, nobody fucking knows better than I do of how to do it my way. I'm, it's subjective. It's nothing about this is objective. So I, when I got to the point, people started to say, well, you need to go to this person. And you go, I was just like, fuck off. I'm doing it. I'm going down in flames my way. But it was not from a place where I thought, like, I'm so good, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to listen. I'm, it was, I'm going to listen to everybody, but I'm going to end up doing it my way. Because if I don't, then again, I'm screwed because I'm now I, I'm I, and I already know that in this crowd, playing to them is a really stupid idea because nobody knows what they want. Clearly, no one really knows what they want. They're looking for you to give that to them. I didn't know that really until about a year and a half after doing it because I just thought, well, I went my first audition literally like ten days after I got hurt playing hockey. Oh, really? I called my my agent, who's still my agent now. I'd done a movie called. Um, high school for my friend and now partner John John Stahlberg. He needed a guy, this actor dropped out. So I was before playing you were an actor. Before I was an actor, you just I was playing ho- went and helped him out. Helped him out and you know. Then my the agent saw the movie went to Sundance, so I was like, no idea what Sundance was. Went to Sundance, I was playing hockey in Germany and he called and was like, Hey, uh, you're the guy in the movie. I was wondering if you have representation and I was like uh, yeah, I've got a, I got an agent already. Because I thought he was talking about hockey. I'm like, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting, uh, no, I'm with uh, DSC Sports, and I was like, no, I'm a film agent. And I was like, oh, okay. So, as soon as I got hurt, I called him. I was like, do you have room in your lineup for me? Because I, I would like to try. And he said, sure. And I went and did an audition for. Captain America. Yeah, yeah. It was like my first, literally my first thing, and I was like, I walked in, I was like, what do I? So I just like, say the lines, and so you'd never been in an audition before in your life. Never, never been in. An and audition. did you call your parents and say, I got to go do this audition? What do no. I do? Like, 
Because they don't Nothing. fucking know. They have no idea. They haven't auditioned for anything in a hundred years. <laughs> so, so they were like, "Well, there's going to be a lady with a title." Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> right, right. Exactly. There's going to be a lady. They're going to send you a telegram. Right. Yeah. And everything's going to be recorded to a tape. <laughs> but like, the, so I didn't know. I didn't have anybody to ask. Really, uh, it was n- good. It was nice. And my sister, she rocketed to stardom quickly. It was right. just different. And my brother was more of the person I could talk to, but he was doing really well. And it was just like, I just felt like I should just do it on my own. And I should figure it out on my own. As has been the yeah, it was the it, guiding philosophy for you throughout your life. For, yeah, it was, it was going to be, it was going to be, um, and also I didn't want to involve other people's opinions because then yeah, they can get in your head and can screw you up. I just figured I'll just go do it and I'll fail on my own. No one will ever know. So what happened with Captain America? I didn't get it, but the but the the casting director said, "Yeah, you're good and you're green and but you're pretty good and you know, we'll bring you back on other stuff." And the next job I came back on was a movie called Cowboys and Aliens, which I got and it was like, "Fuck, this is awesome. This is great. Cowboys and Aliens, I play a cowboy around a campfire and then Toby Huss is in it and he gets abducted and it was fantastic and and then I did a Law and Order and so I was getting jobs and then I I, I legitimately thought, oh, this is easy. This really? is fucking easy. I got it. I'm good. And a year and a half went by, and it was like the desert. And I just got nothing. Zero. Nada. It was not even a sniff. For television, pilot season, like, I was, it was like, well, am I bad? Did they see these things? Like, what happened? What did you do with yourself during that time? I didn't do anything. I spent all my hockey money. And... And it was actually funny. The only reason I didn't move back home was because in Cowboys and Aliens, they called on the night I was supposed to leave or the night before I was supposed to leave. And they said, don't get on a plane. You're not coming. And I was like, fuck, I got fired. I got fired before it even took off. Like, I never even got to do the movie. No, somebody died on the, on the reservation that we're shooting on, and we all have to get off the reservation because they have a special ceremony. And we're coming back in 30 days, so we've got to put you on hold. Which means they pay me to fucking play beach volleyball and <laughs> do nothing. And it really was. Like, this is the greatest job in the world. This is the greatest job in the world. I don't know why I ever thought it was not. And so I did that for a month. It paid my bills for six months. And then Law & Order got canceled, which is like the only Law & Order to ever get canceled. <laughs> like, you know, like four episodes in. So they played my episode that I was in like eight times in prime time, which means you get a residual check. Right, right. So even though I didn't get a job for a year and a half, I was getting paid like I was working. And it was, it was just, I mean, I just got lucky. But I didn't, I, I didn't, I'm really bad at auditioning. I'm really not good at auditioning. <laughs> and did that period of a year and a half, did it, did it make you question, like, like, when you come in and you have some immediate success, Yeah, it's like coming up from the minor leagues and you hit three home runs your first week. Mm, yeah. You're loose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, I love that I just gave a hockey player a baseball No, player. but it's totally, it's exactly it. And then you don't get the work. Did you actually, like, tighten up and, and start f- overthinking it? And oh, yeah. You did? Oh, yeah. Because the audition process is a fucking disaster, right? It's, it, it really is not the most conducive process to finding the best talent. If I need to see you do a character, I need you to come in and do it here, and we can't do it in the place that we're doing it in. We can't, we don't have time. You get one shot, maybe two, at being able to just take what's in your mind without any direction or any help or any, uh, and just put it out there and hopefully that, it, that you do well on the test. And I was really, what I was good at and my strengths were not in performing. I'm not a performer. It's not in my nature to, to go into a phone booth and act for you in this situation as if we're in France by the Eiffel Tower having a romantic dinner. So you need all of the, you need the real world. and the, you, I need and, the real world. And then you exist in it rather yeah. than... I need that to feel entirely... Now, I understand that you need to be able to bring some of that, but, but the audition process, the best casting directors, I think, can see through the trick. You're tricking somebody when you're auditioning them, literally. You're, you're tricking them into thinking that a room exactly like this is your interesting in uh, a different scenario. So there's an aspect of, to me, subtlety in real life that I can't necessarily express to you in an audition. Right. 
And it's hard for someone I felt like me to get that across without having the footage to say, I know you think I might be boring here, but what I'm really doing is subtle. And, I'm, and, I, and, I'm, and it'll be responding to the person that's talking to me in a subtle way. So you're saying you were a bad auditioner because you were a good actor. I feel ways. like sometimes the things that I thought was good acting was not conducive to right. showing somebody what you could do in an audition until I met Jim Mickle. And when I met Jim about a year and a half, I was like done. I was like, this is, I'm not good at it. I'm not going to get jobs. I think I'm fine at it, but I'm not going to work. So you sort of gave up a little bit. A little bit, yeah, I did. I gave up to the point where I thought, well, I'll do something else in film. Whether I'll, I don't know, I'll figure something else out, and I know I like film, and I love film, and I'll, and I'll figure out another way. But acting's like, not, not gonna work, I don't think. And I finally met Jim, met him in an office, and I just told him the truth. For the first time, I just said, I've been doing it, because I, I, I got into that, what you said, I got tight, and I got it, I tried to do it for them. And you tried to do the trick. Tried to do the trick, yeah. which I'm not good at doing. And, and, and some people are very good at doing it. Some people like, like live to perform and they can make you feel something and, you know, when, when, uh, when there's nothing. And I think I've gotten better at doing that um, and more confident, but I wasn't good at doing it. I would try and go in there with the outfit and the thing and do it the way they'd want. And it was like never correct. It wasn't, it wasn't authentic. It was nothing that was going to show them what, what I was good at. And when I met Jim, I finally said, I don't think I'm good at auditioning. I don't, think I'm, I don't think the audition process picks up what I'm good at. I think that um, you know, I've been doing what other people want me to do and not being myself enough. Uh, I, I just listed all the things that I was insecure about, pretty much. And, and we had a great time together. And uh, he said, well, I hope you can act because I really like you as a, as a person. I came back the next day and I got the job. And, it changed my life because it changed my view on, the movie didn't change my life, but, but, the, but the view on how to approach film and acting changed my opinion of what I was doing. Because I, I felt like as if now someone understood me and, and, and I, could, I could be a part in their, in their process and it was actually exciting. And I, and I felt lucky to be doing it and I understood why people love doing it. So interesting how you can get almost to that point where you can talk yourself out of something or, or decide oh. that for whatever reason you're not going to fit into something that you thought you would. Because I think one thing that everybody who's successful in this business shares is they had to find their own way to do it. Mm -hmm. It's just like you are saying earlier, the, the imitation, the Marlon Brando example. Y you have to find your own thing. And that comes from, I just think, prior experience and in life. I, I, I don't see how you cannot go live life in some an anonymous way to where you can just observe people and then come back and have something interesting to show. You know, you've got to be able to live live life a little bit. And that's why I think it's hard for like young actors who start off young. Cause start out wanting to be an actor and they're, they're always trying to do it and rather yeah, the than experience to draw on and all that kind of stuff you know looking back now on your years of hockey can you point to any behaviors that you had where you can say oh yeah it actually makes sense i became an actor <laughs> that's funny in terms of being more observant or honestly it was through it wasn't this it wasn't the actual game it was more so seeing people when they're their most vulnerable. And that to me was a big part. You see men at their most vulnerable when, and they'll never show it to anybody else because the locker room is a very specific place. And when you see true heartbreak in a man, uh, is, is it's, one of the, it's one of the only times as a young person that you'll see it. And I don't know what it is about hockey it's so fucking painful when you when you lose. It's so fucking hard, and and because of the physicality, the fighting. Like I, I know guys who I was in the locker room with, who came back in after his first fight, and I was had to give him a hug after his first fight because he was just bawling. It was the emotional aspect of what he'd just gone through, and it was very real. And you see frauds, and you see people who are faking their way through, and you see people who are truly struggling and truly insecure, and people who overcome that insecurity. All of the things that you feel in your life, if you're aware enough, which was also my 
problem. Was maybe I was a little too aware. Like yeah. it could have been I could have had a little bit more horse blinders and been a little bit more dumb and may have, you know, blocked out some of the thoughts that weren't well, but I think what you described about watching your parents, I mean, uh, as a kid, that's an incredibly, like, scary, vulnerable place to be when, when you see strangers that want something from you or from your parents. And I, I don't know how you don't become more aware or grow up quicker when you, when you run that gauntlet as a kid, you know? Uh, yeah. You, and and go, it was like, I remember going to, it's going to Kings games and stuff like that. You just would see, and especially when people got drunk, is you'd see... You know, you have kids. Do you have kids? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It can be very scary for a kid. And that you can be very fearful, and you can, as a, I think a parent, retreat into that thought process of I'm going to protect my child. Instead of what my dad kind of did was say, look at that guy. Look at look, 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 what an asshole. <laughs> you don't want to be like that guy. And it's like, yeah, fuck, I don't want to be like that guy. So I think that, you know, there was a lot of that, too. He's a very, they're both, my parents are very aware people. And, you know, they didn't want to shield us from, they didn't shield us from any of it. What you're describing is really the subtext of what you, you have to find as an actor. You're trying to tell the story of what's happening under the surface, too. And what you describe when you're talking about going back into the locker room and, and seeing human nature from the vantage point of sports is is that subtext yeah like you can see the guy that puts on the tough exterior but after a long enough time playing you can see that that's he's got a vulnerable spot or a weak point that and those are the same things you have to find i'm sure in your job to to flesh out a character and make them feel human yes 100 percent 100 100 percent and and that's what's fun about it now and that's what it's given me and it, and it, I was also kind of obsessed with it, right? I was obsessed with that aspect of make of acting, of trying to find that in a char- in, in a character and find like the reality in it. And going back to sports for a minute, there's there's something that even on the level of you know Tuesday night basketball with your preschool dad group, mm-hmm. you sort of cannot hide your true personality when you play sports. It's no, you going can't. to come out. You'll always play to who you are. It's such invaluable knowledge for, weirdly, the career you went into, even though on the surface they seem so different. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I think that's why sports is good for every kid, but it's the same in every profession. And that's what, everybody I think has a little bit of the grass is greener, um, even in film, it's like, well, I should, you know, if I were create, if I created the show, or if I cast the show, or if I was directing, or if I was producing, like everybody has this grass is greener sure. mentality. When and that goes are, on for actors as well. Of course, yeah. It's like that's that's for one hundred percent because you don't feel in control sometimes. But you have to remember that you're here, where you are today, for a purpose, for a reason. And if you want to change your life, and if you wanted to really change your direction then go step inside the other person's shoes and really see what it's like for, you know, a week. And then you'll, and then you'll realize that everything's the fucking same. That all your problems are going to be the same. That all your insecurities are going to be the same. Everything's going to be the same. You might be a little bit... You might actually find a job that you're more happy doing for most, you know, most of the time or you feel like you're actually better suited for. But the reality is, is that all of those... All the, all the microcosms that you dealt with when you were 10... And the way you dealt with them, or the way you were taught to deal to deal with them, are going to be, for the most part, the way you want to deal with it. No, it's true. Wherever, whatever situation you find yourself in, you're still going to be yourself, and you're still going to have those same those same dynamics are still going to be at play. Yeah, it's so true. And 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 it's funny, even in this past, like I, we've we've been on this trip for like I bought a van. I bought a van, and it's a Sprinter conversion van. That right. Um, so you you bought a Sprinter van. You and your fiance yeah. are taking time off and sort of road tripping it. Yes, for about three weeks a month. We're not exactly sure how much longer we're going to be going, but and uh, we—it's the best thing about it was that it, and it fits the light, our life perfectly because we can't really make plans like vacations ahead of time because you just never know, right? If you get a job or yeah. whatever right. happens. And, and we should say your your fiance is Meredith Hagner. Meredith Hagner, who was in. Folk hero and funny guy with yes. you, and she's a musician as well. She's a musician as well. We wrote songs together for the right. movie. Um, she's in a show called Search Party that's really fantastic. If you haven't seen it, it's fucking great. Um, 
but yeah, so we, we, we got a van before I went to go to work on Lodge, and the first couple days were, <laughs> were you know, you're learning how, to, it's, it's a moving house, you're really learning how, to, how things work, and then you get into the groove, and once you get into the groove, it's really fucking hard to get out. It really does get you out of a mindset of, you get go, go, go real easy, especially money, you get, gets it for me, it gets attached to like, well, I need to get the next thing, and I need to... Yeah. Figure out what to do next, and, uh, and I got to capitalize on this opportunity because now yeah. I have all these offers, and I sat there for a year and a half and didn't, didn't have do anything. anything. And so you want to get going, yeah. and, and, and we've got to read these things, and, and then you, you sort of realize, like, wait a second, I can just fuck breathe for a second and enjoy it, and don't you don't have to worry about the stuff you think you have to worry about quite as much, and uh, and and not being around people is can be great, <laughs> you know, it can be really great, and seeing that that part of, the, part of the United States has been awesome. Well, maybe you are learning from Dud. I know, you know what, it's like, it's very possible that like, that has seeped into my bloodstream a little bit. I think every character you kind of do, uh, you, you take on a little bit of, of what they had to offer, which can be a problem too. I mean, I've done things as well, you do characters where you go, uh, that doesn't. That wasn't a great quality that I've taken on. Because <laughs> I did a movie called Overlord at, but right before right the World War the II, World War II vampire, vampire thing. Yeah, and I played like a, a you know hardcore guy who killed yeah, people. He was, and a, he was a bad mean military, mean military guy. Yeah, and two weeks later, I'm in long. I'm in Atlanta being dud, and the first, the very first scene, it was like. Peter had to come over to me and be like, okay, like, remember, happy. <laughs> He's happy. Because I, I had to play a scene where I was kind of mad at somebody, and I, was, and I played it like I was really fucking mad. And I'd just been playing mad for three months in a very real, horrible way. Right. Well, how could, I mean, how could it not affect you in some yeah, way? Yeah. You know? you're, obviously, you're not doing your job if it's not affecting you. Yeah. And, and, and I think the more you do it, the better you get it. Uh, disassociating from the character a little bit, right? Right. And I'm not like I'm, you know, there's no, there's no method in me. But if you're, if you're working 12 hours a day and you're doing something 12 hours a day, it's hard not to have some of it bleed over into yeah. you, you know. And it's really hard. you got to watch out for staying positive, staying positive. Don't get negative. Don't get negative on yourself. I think yeah. that's, I think that's a big part of of staying sane and doing movies as well. Well, listen, what's amazing about your story is that. You went out and found your own identity and, and struggled against something that was really, really hard and developed your own original path, your own way of doing things. Thanks, and then when you came to acting, you were able to do it on your own terms rather than, rather than so, somebody else's path. Right, you know? yeah. That's right. what's fascinating thanks, to me. And, thanks a lot. And God, I could talk to you for hours. Thank um, you. I could talk to you for hours. Well, it's <laughs> clearly this show isn't long enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thank, yeah. You for, thank you for sharing everything with me. Thank you. Thank you for getting out of me. <laughs> <laughs> Hey folks, that's our show. Boy, I love talking to Wyatt, and I was really excited to talk to him because I'm a huge fan of Lodge 49. If you haven't seen that show, search it out. It's on AMC, and you can find past episodes on Hulu. And it's a really unique show, and it really showcases Wyatt's odd charisma. And if you want to dive deeper into off-camera's odd charisma, well, you can go to the offcamera.com website where you can find everything out about this show. For instance, you're listening to it right now as a podcast. But did you also know that Off Camera is a television show that is on every week on DirecTV's Audience Network? That's right. You can see the conversations you've been hearing. And even if you don't have DirecTV, you can get our monthly subscription package, which allows you access to all 200 of our past episodes. It's a fantastic way to take a deep dive into the show, and you can watch every episode as many times as you want on any device you want for only $4.99 a month. That's a pretty great deal. So check that out. We also have a store on there and we sell a magazine. So there's a lot of ways to get more involved in off camera. You can find us on social media. We are off camera show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I'm Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones pictures on Instagram. 
If you've listened to this show for a while, you know I'm also a photographer. And every guest that comes in, we take time after the conversation to do a photo shoot. And you can see all of those in our off-camera magazine and also on our Instagram sites. So take a minute and check that out. And if you really love the show and you want to connect with me, if you have a suggestion for a guest, or if you have a question you want answered, or if you just want some bad advice, you can send me an email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. Also, don't be shy. If you like this show, please take a minute and share it on social media. That helps us so much. By simply talking about this show with your friends, your virtual and your real friends, you can help us keep it on the air. So if you do enjoy it, don't keep it a secret. Share it with the world. Thank you for all that. And I want to also thank everyone that works on this show each week. Uh, We couldn't do it without our team of dedicated and talented people. That's Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Michaela Galvin, Sasha Snow, and Kara Johnson. So if you see any of these people in the street, buy them lunch, give them a hug, tell them something nice. They deserve it. And be sure to join me next time when I sit down with actress Constance Wu. For me, when I didn't get a part, I didn't call home and try to get comfort or anything because there's actually a lot of shame attached to it because you think employment is a measure of your self-worth and shame was something that kept me isolated. But that's also why I feel a deep need for connection. The people who are ashamed probably need it the most for somebody to be like, no, you're loved and valued as is. You don't have to have these check marks of success. The star of Fresh Off the Boat, Crazy Rich Asians, and now Hustlers with Jennifer Lopez is having a moment that she has waited 10 years for. Long resigned to a life of acting in small theater productions while waiting tables, Constance never dared dream that her career would reach the heights it has. But she realized she loved acting so much that she could forego all the little details, like making money, buying a house, or getting out of debt. Her relentless approach to her career, her fierce independence, and her unwillingness to ask for help fascinated me. Her impulsiveness and vulnerability drew me in, and her desire to suck at the guitar intrigued me. See you next time, off camera.